Hope well finds message. You finds message. This message. I well you finds you. I hope well hope message. This I you this this well finds you finds you hope you this I Welcome to another episode of I Hope This Message Finds You Well. My name is Chris Ditto and with me is my friend and colleague Eloise Wheatman. Today we share an excerpt from a longer conversation we did with Joey Tang in April 2021. Joey Tang is a Hong Kong-born American curator, artist, writer in no hierarchical order. He began working alongside artists at the Notary Public in 2010 in his New York City apartment while a graduate student at New York University. Joey was arts editor of literary journal N Plus One, curator at Palais de Tokyo in Paris, and director of exhibitions at Biela Gallery at Columbus College of Art and Design. Most recently, he curated exhibitions at Centre Pompidou in Paris, Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia, and Futuria Center of Contemporary Art in Prague. I hope this message finds you well. Just before we met with Eloise, like I asked her and then I was like, oh, and actually we can ask you uh, if you consider yourself an artist who curates or a curator who is also an artist or an artist who is also curated, like what is the relationship between these two roles and how you see your practice unfolding uh, yeah. in this constellation? When I was working at Pali Tokyo in 2014-15, that was my first um, time working in an institution. And I was previously part of a sort of citywide project that Pali Tokyo initiated in 2013, which um, was focusing on this idea of the artist curator. And so there were a constellation of shows at Pali Tokyo, but also in different galleries in Paris. So I was, um, I curated one of the, these projects in, in the gallery at, um, Place de la Balade. And so when I started this position at Pali Tokyo, I, I still had, I still had a, a practice of, a, you know, a kind of non-studio practice of some sort. I was still showing my work and, um, I really thought that I, I would have to stop making art or, um, mainly because there, I wouldn't have any time, um, because my job would be very, was very demanding where I had to, to do quite a lot of travel and produce a show in, in nine months with, um, artists from, from China specifically. So I have to do the research and then, you know, do this show. But it turned out that I, I had uh, a solo gallery show at, at the gallery who, um, in Paris, who I worked with, um, uh, Joseph Tang, who is not, we're not related, actually, but I can tell you more about that. Maybe I can, you know, this would be the space to really clarify to all the, all the people out there that we're not the same person. We're not brothers or he's not my dad or, you know, I think there are other rumors there too. Um, but, um, but I really thought that because of the 
the responsibilities at Play Tokyo I would have, there's no way that I can concentrate on, on making my own work. But what I found out was that through the many studio visits I was doing that year, I think I did like over a hundred, like 20 or more. And, you know, I think it was like 12, 14 cities or something. Some very short, some like, you know, hours long. So they're not, they were not all very involved, all the same um, duration um, in terms of the studio visit time. But that was quite a lot of work. And I actually, that experience actually reinforced my, it gave me a way to insist on my own art practice. One of the fears as an artist curator is once you're meeting artists and you're working with artists, you, you or I started, I thought I would start to question my own work, you know, both my commitment to my own work, but also, you know, the way that what, what's my work as an artist. But I think that research, that those trips actually showed me that, you know, there is something within my own work that I, that's uniquely mine, let's say, that I was dealing with very, kind of concerns that are very specific to my practice. Maybe another way to say it is that I didn't feel like worried about, like there was no, I was worried that it would sort of like absorb what I see and then like it will kind of, inf you know, to infiltrate my practice. And then I, it would be very embarrassing to, you know, like, you know, the worst thing is to, take on, take on someone's ideas, right? Like that's something you saw in a studio. And then now it's like, you know, in your work, you know, that we all kind of hear stories about that, like in schools or, you know, between teachers and students and things like that. But that didn't like those fears actually were quickly dissipated because I, um, yeah, I found that there was something in my work. So I did a solo show at Joseph Tang. And I thought actually that was a turning point for me. Um, and I realized that my work was really about, um, the boundaries and the limitations, but also the possibility of, of time and space, um, and the limits of an exhibition, um, as a holder of my work. Um, as I was, you know, planning for, um, at that time, like the biggest, kind of in terms of size and duration of planning what am I the biggest what was the biggest kind of exhibitions I've ever put together as a curator I was able to actually find my own way of working at, in my art so that was really a training point so so there I think yeah they're they're friends let's say like my art and my curatorial work but they're not you know they can get together but they they're not the same person yeah it's interesting that you use like you were talking about like the limits of time and space of that hold your exhibitions and uh, it is interesting to think about that in terms of like and like perhaps i'm going too far in advance but into like your work with fierce pussy which to me feels also kind of pushing the limits of time and space. And it was interesting to think about that 
also in because you uh, mentioned in your biography about thinking along with artists, which to me seems like a quite an important part of the way that you curate. And I was wondering if you could talk about like what that means actually and how that, how that, what does that look like actually? These long-term relationships also are important. I just wanted to find a way to work with, with artists, I think in general, and trying to find ways to kind of break open some of these limitations that institutions put forth uh, for many, many reasons that they have to do so. But also I was, you know, with specifically with the members of Fierce Pussy, with um, the artists Nancy Brooks Brody, Carrie Yamaoka, Joy Episala, and Zoe Leonard, and maybe briefly about that project is that the four of them uh, formed a collective called um, Fierce Pussy in 1991 as they they initially met at an ACT UP meeting through their work uh, in AIDS activism. And ACT UP stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And they really wanted, you know, as they were caring for their friends uh, who were dying of AIDS, uh, many of them were men, and they wanted to find a space to connect with other women-identified members of, of ACT UP. Um, and so they formed a group um, together, and there were other people, founding members as well, but they were, and there are different members through the years, but they were the four core people who had been there since the beginning. And the the kind of idea or maybe even the limits for the project was really to think about their personal practices as individual artists in and alongside the collective work as Fierce Pussy, which involved many, mostly in the beginning, public public works, with pasting of posters um, that are, are used to call out other connect with and call out other queer folks on, you know, in the public space. But I was really, I started working with uh, Nancy, Joy and Carrie on another project that um, centers around the the techniques of photograms in kind of darkroom residency that I co-founded with the artist Thomas Fougeot in the outskirts of Paris. And if you sort of maybe get to know the works of Nancy, Joy, Carrie for the first time, and Zoe, you know, I personally didn't know that they were part of Fierce Pussy. Like, I knew of Fierce Pussy, and I knew of them. Like, the the work they make are not immediately uh, visually connected, like the individual, individual work and the collective work. And so this was around 2000 five when I approached them to to think together about ways of bringing their individual practices in conversation uh, the resonances between their works the way they think about materials surfaces through many different strategies including abstraction including a kind of engagement with time through sculpture, photography, video. And they, I found out that they had never shown 
their works together as the, as just the four of them, though they've been in many, many group exhibitions that center around AIDS activism or kind of queer aesthetics, uh, et cetera. So I thought like that's, you know, one of, that's such an obvious thing to do then. And because there are decades of, you know, they've been together as a group for a few decades, one exhibition's not gonna, like an exhibition isn't the form. It might not be the form for, um, for bringing them together. Uh, at that time, I, you know, wasn't thinking about a space specifically. I didn't want the space to determine what we, we would do. So my proposal to them was just to think together and like, like I, maybe it's a talk that we will end up having with them or a book or a dinner. I didn't want to like ask for, I didn't want to ask for things that artists usually are being asked to do. Like I didn't feel like, you know, this idea of performing for the public you know, they already do so much work for the public. So what's the, what would the engagement with the public mean? And so, and also because I've never worked with the four of them, it's, I felt like it's not my, my place to, to propose an exhibition. Like exhibition felt like was the wrong way to go about it. Like, because it's, it's, it's a very specific goal post. And if being in the world, it's about moving around through these sort of goalposts, then we must, um, we must think in different ways. So I think that learning process of working of the work of the artist, but also learning how to work together was really important. It's continuing to, it continues to be important since we're, um, the project is still ongoing. And eventually the project became part of, it encompasses exhibitions and in, in the process is a book, you know, and then public talks and events and performances, et cetera. But, but that was only because I had the opportunity to, to work as a, a director of a, a gallery, uh, in an art school. And so I, yeah, that became a kind of like thinking through time about, Again, not having a static, static exhibition to be able to hold the work that is so dynamic. And it's what, what being in movement in the world mean. That's one of the kind of, like, how can an exhibition, um, correspond or communicate or address the ways they, the artists work or how these four artists work, which thinks about the idea of time through series making series that don't feel like a series series that are done maybe intermittently through decades like how do you address that that kind of making go ahead yeah it's more like a comment i just found it very inspiring or sort of i feel this liberation hearing about you know being able to take the space and the time despite the kind of requirements of the general like art world working process or institutional kind of uh, 
day-to-day business, you know, when the registrar has to do their work, the art handler has to do their work, the show is like two months or three months duration and then moving on to the next thing. I find it just really inspiring to take that space, which I feel like it's very courageous also to take and claim that space. Um, Yeah, I had a question about the very beginnings. What led you to or have have you become a curator or perhaps was it like a natural process or what when you start when have you started naming yourself a curator also so the beginning was when i was um i was going i was getting my mfa degree my master in art as an artist at new york university um around 2000 at 2000 in 2009 so 2009 2010 and then 11 and in the begin in the middle of the two years in New York, I you know, with student loans, and this is right after the two thousand eight financial crash, where I sort of shifted. Like I decided, I I was already living in New York, and I decided that I wouldn't want to go back to work. Also, I was working in the magazine industry, which total totally collapsed in two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, so there was no, there were no jobs, um, in the field that I was, um, working in, in New York. So the sort of, this is the moment when physical magazines were going through, uh, a shift. So things were starting to be just online. And then there were this question of like, um, you know, if magazines are going to die or something. And so I went back to school and I, yeah, actually, not sure I would, what, how much I would share about this part. Like, so it was 2009, 2010. So in the summer between the two years, because, you know, yeah, like, where, what do I do? Like, I don't have the resources and money to go somewhere, have student loans. I'm not going to like a vacation or something. So I decided to, and this is the moment where they were starting. I mean, there are different periods in New York. Of course, through the many, the past decades, uh, where the idea of having exhibitions that you're in your home or your apartment or spaces that are temporary were becoming a space where artists work out their ideas. And so I, I thought in that summer, I'm going to have a show in my apartment, which was really was quite a, a small space. It was maybe 25 square meter. It was a 25 square meter space on, on Madison Avenue, which, um, was a space I moved into actually because it was very affordable. It should kind of like maybe clarify that because it's in the neighborhood. It's in the Upper East Side, the Carnegie Hill neighborhood, which, which normally it's not so affordable, but this specific building there was like a kind of deli on the ground floor and um, a salon on the second floor. So it was actually very affordable. And it was maybe one of the few buildings um, that didn't have like um, like a concierge or something. Actually, it was like more affordable than other some of the other neighborhoods where my my friends were living in Brooklyn. And so I would have I thought I would have a show there in that summer. And so I invited I invited classmates, artists I met, and teachers, and 
you know, people who came through for studio visits from school. So I did kind of, that was my first show I curated. And I, I think I had a work in it too. So this, in the early years, I would be seeing some of the projects that I curate usually as a way to kind of be with the artist. So, you know, not like, oh, I'm a curator, but like, I'm just putting a show together. It's, maybe that's kind of a better way of thinking about what I do. It's putting artworks um, alongside each other. And yeah, so that was a really kind of critical moment. One thing that I did do was I wanted the exhibition to have two parts. So what's different about the second part is that some artworks would uh, be moved, but their movements were very minor. And I was very much, um, you know, I, I still think about this film by um, the Thai filmmaker, Api Chapong, his, his film Blissfully, Blissfully Yours, which which essentially I was thinking a lot about this moment when the, the film starts. The film actually starts, well, there's the beginning of the film and then there's the kind of credits, the beginning credits of the film that starts maybe like 20 minutes into the film. So there's this kind of shift of consciousness that takes place, like, oh, now it really starts. But then does that mean the big, what you just saw was the end? Like, there was this very conscious, it, it was longer than usual when, you know, typical when the movie really starts. So, and at that moment, I, I thought I was at the middle of the film, but I don't think it was right in the middle. But it felt like that, like it really split something that could loop uh, back. Uh, the end could look back into the beginning. Um, so my idea for for the for my apartment, uh, which was I used, I, I called it the notary public, as a way to think about the function of the notary in the U.S., which is very different. Like you, you can go to like a shop that sells paper or something. There'll be the notary there and just like give you the stamp, and they don't even look at. I think I had to get something stamped at that time, and they don't even look at your papers. They just stamp it. It doesn't have the same status as, as perhaps in France, um, the, the the role of the notary. And so the idea of was to split the exhibition in, like in halves. And the second half, I um, there was a diptych by 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 an artist, Cody Trapte. One work was slightly smaller than the other one. They look quite identical. I just kind of swapped the the two. Uh, there was a configuration of works on about the sofa, which were just moved, you know, rehung. There was one work by Heidi Hinrichs, which was uh, a sculpture that was resting on a bookshelf. And then in the second half, it kind of like performs and dangles above the desk. So these small shifts um, that were taking place, there was a work by Cara Bove, who was one of my teachers, where she made these cast of peanut shells and peanuts. So she gave me like a bunch of them. And I, I asked if I could just, you know, do this process of accumulation that like every week or something, there'd be more peanuts and shells um, on the, the mantle. So I think some of these ideas kind of come back now, like in a bigger, 
more expanded way, the idea of accumulation, the idea of change, the idea of imperceptible shifts, the idea of moving an artwork from one place to another, um, which I should say for the project with, with Fierce Pussy, some of the artworks will, we, they would move into a different room in a different chapter and artworks would leave and new works would come in. So it's this sort of this constant refreshing of the the core of what is visible in the exhibition. It's also interesting then, so the project, I think it's called More More Than Than Lovers Lovers, More More Than Than Friends Friends, the, the film endings. Uh, is interesting then also in what you're saying about the picture to pong verisicle and also the last page of of this book. Would you oh, see? Yeah. yeah, it's also really so. It's um, or maybe Joy, you want to explain the project because this to me would be a really interesting uh, example of when it, uh, something that could be both an artwork and a curated project. Actually, I don't know which you see it as. Yeah, no, that's really true. This is one, yeah, this is an interesting instance. So the project was actually first installed at Futura in Prague. It was a series of film endings that I asked. Maybe I think there were like 40, 50 people about their favorite film endings. Being, you know, someone who, who loves watching films, staying till the end, always. I only watch films in cinemas. It's just a space I can actually not be distracted. And that sort of shift of consciousness that happens at like, you know, that song that doesn't make, that they played when the credits roll that has like nothing to do sometimes with the film. Like it's a different energy. It's a different mode of being. Sometimes it's a song that maybe it's like a, you know, a pop song that like seems really incongruent with the film i've always been interested in this moment like when i mean most of the people have left already and then the song that seems to like you know not really doing much to the experience of the film because by then you're all you know leaving the cinema or turned it off already but that somehow pushed one either back into reality or it actually complicates the reality that you like re-enter, you know, leaving the cinema. In one particular, and sometimes it happens like in the last scene, and it's the song that carries out. So in in Kardonis's film *Botavai*, the the Baj song uh, *Rhythm of the Night* is this song that I mean, it's one of one of my favorite scenes of film endings, which is this like the character the protagonist kind of breaks into a dance with the song in the room full of mirrors and and so i was really curious if other people have their own you know ending and i think this was in 2016 so actually my my father passed away that year so i was thinking about ending in different ways and and maybe one interesting thing that i'm still thinking about and this isn't a question that you're asking about like the difference between kind of the parameters of being an artist and a curator, but I also think about the parameters of living a life and being a curator too. 
like, you know, in retrospect, whether, you know, it's something that, you know, I was able to do, like, I was, like, preparing for an exhibition while, you know, I was caring for my father and the aftermath of, of his death. So, like, I'm still questioning these things, actually, now, um, whether it's, like, how do those things intersect, right? So I think the ending really came out of this, like, thinking about other endings, endings that could, like, lift and push something into a different zone, but also having other people be part of that. I hope this message finds you well. But I want to read something that I wrote for a book called Shelf Documents, our library as practice that um, there was a part of a project with Heidi Hinrichs, and it's just an essay where I kind of think about institutions from the vantage point of being in one recently, and this sort of loops back to the way I work with the, the artists from, from Fierce Pussy as well in thinking about this, this idea of the slowness as a way of working, which I, I was calling it slow programming just for really for it to be understood beyond the curatorial context as a way to kind of think about, like, insist on a space of working that hopefully suits the artists as well as the people who work with artists. And it kind of touches on some of the maybe questions I have as well. Maybe there's something in there you can answer um, or respond to. It's just one paragraph. Working with and alongside artists in an embodied entanglement, and adjacencies, proximities, and contingencies are set into motion, sustained by an ethos I termed slow programming. His name is a dig at the pervasiveness in the co-opting of curation. Slow programming co-opts the infusion of the slow food movement in aspects of contemporary life. Slow programming is active and is held together through collective labor and bodies over time. Slow programming motivates attentiveness and brings the transformation of awareness into view. Slow programming occupies the time and space in between as well as what it envelops. Slow programming reorders how time is used and felt as artists, their works and their publics move through the physical space of the gallery and beyond its confines. Slow programming advocates for a a flexibility around rigid administration, bureaucracy, budgetary allocation, and fiscal projections to take into account how artists work and live in the world. Slow programming acknowledges that institutional memories are developed by people and might be short-lived. Slow programming reshapes infrastructure to participate in a collective past, present, and future where staff, adjuncts, and tenured professors, students, and publics live out histories. Slow programming embraces the volatile instability of institutions as one that is already found in the world, and as such animates pliability to construct with artists in their temporary residence in institutional structures. Slow programming tends to and cares for. Slow programming enlivens contradictions. Slow programming reckons with the capitalist amassing of student debt and teacher debt. Nice. Thank you. 
I, I like like uh, this idea of slow programming also that allows hesitation and pause. And uh, could you read the line again about the contradiction, actually? Because I think that is something that one gets caught up with. Hmm. Well, it's quite short, actually, that part. Slow programming tends to and cares for. Slow programming enlivens contradictions. Slow programming reckons with the capitalist amassing of student debt and teacher debt. So what I found is that, you know, a lot of the teachers in the US actually are paying off their student loans and their salaries can't pay for, you know, their student loans. And so there's this contradiction there as well, where you as a maybe adjunct professor or teacher uh, are, you know, experiencing some of the aftermath of being a student. So then there's this sort of like, you know, um, space of, yeah, contradiction there. And that's really something I, you know, it was actually really hard to, it is hard to be in that space, hard to work in a space as someone who is still paying off my student loans where, you know, I think that, that in itself, the structural problem in the U.S., and also the inequity that arises out of that as well. I was just going to mention it very much speaks to what I aspire to. My aspiration is to be more patient, especially with myself, also within my work, which I feel I'm getting very much caught on in this like very quick modus operandi, quick decisions, moving on to the next thing, which is also like this kind of constant anxiety survival mode of having to produce something just to be able to live. But that's kind of like a very tricky thing to be in. But uh, yeah, the contradictions of slow programming also is to go very slow, you have to work really, really hard to, you know, control, but also to resist the kind of outside demands and expectations and responsibilities too. So it was also really important, I think, too, or interesting to talk about those contradictions or how to, how to tackle them. It's also interesting to think about the work that you made with the guitar strings, actually, and thinking about slow programming as that as the audience or like it's sort of like an interesting idea that the audience like bumps up against something that's seemingly invisible and then has to slow down and negotiate around it. And like how it's really interesting to think about how through the routing of an exhibition you can slow down uh, sort of sort of slow down a body and then make uh, and then through that a, a sort of a contemplation and then so how could you then apply that to an organization or or an institution or or like uh, a set of operations that allows for the exhibition to come about like it's i don't know i, I don't know if you see see a connection but it's to me uh, like it, it yeah, it feels very, very much there. Well, there's also, I think as, you know, thinking about at this particular moment, which has been, I guess, 10 years since the first show at the, the my apartment, thinking about these, you know, it's in a way really split between half, like, 
what you might call independent curator, though most of it was really, I think, putting show, putting things together and half as part of an institution in different countries. Now I feel like I'm in this really third phase and it's a kind of interesting time to talk to you because um, how to proceed in a way like maybe now I'm more like an interdependent curator. I'm also, you know, questioning the viability of 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 many things, particularly, you know, in the context of of the US, you know, you almost feel like you have to do something else in conjunction. You you know so where you know this idea of the interdependency or codependency uh coming into play but you're you know you picking up on the slowness isn't you know interesting to for me thinking about the labor in slowness i think there is a contradiction there as well that maybe an impression that slowness it's invisible like that labor is invisible in the slowness which is kind of interesting because you're actually seeing more change but somehow change feels like it could read as like you know no labor required because of the word you know the idea of slow somehow whereas in fact it's you know maybe something i want to think about it's could there be too much slowness where you actually think you are capable of doing more because you're doing less. So then you have like a lot, you know, would I be doing too much of different things that require a slowness? Am I also needing to think about that um, moving forward? And then also what is the kind of metabolism of like working as well? Like once you get used to a kind of slowness, do you take on more? when you're supposed to not take on more. Like the idea of not taking on more is sort of like absorbed. Yeah, and then this kind of ties back to the idea of productivity and this kind of like how productive am I? Um, Actually, I was uh, listening to this podcast uh, on change. I I can't exactly remember the title precisely, but it was talking about, I think they call it a generative void how we need to i feel like it really is also talking to what you're saying joy and i think that actually we all relate to it in some way that that we need this space to allow for things to bubble up over time so like i guess it's also connected to allowing yourself to be bored or to be restless and being in that space to for then these creative connections to come out rather than um, having to force like, you know, brilliant ideas, like pumping them out, like where they're, you know, something in a factory. And this woman was saying that so much in our life doesn't allow for this generative void. Also, it's scary to be in this space of like, hesitation or pause and the pandemic is uh, kind of also gave many people this chance to recalibrate 
you know so some people do thrive in the in the pandemic situation like um, like chris like chris in the sense <laughs> of being able to slow down and decide what is important not anymore though but the you, first few months of the pandemic but, but i think it's kind of like but maybe that's because you also had a lot of good ideas in that time yeah i mean for sure yeah i think it's somehow i made this is my off my own working but definitely i felt like the first few months of the pandemic when everything stopped and it was okay not to answer emails for weeks on i i actually had a time of my life in terms of like thinking about what i want to do and how i want to do things and so like a lot of those kind of seeds are potentially planted already or kind of happening or even our podcasts mm-hmm. sort of came out of this mm-hmm. kind of discussions and also ne- necessity or kind of a need to talk about art and our practice with others mm-hmm. um so yeah no but i think being able to like how can an organization or uh like uh, how can we as freelance curators or independent curators also like kind of program into our work this slow slowness that in some ways like it might be easier to do it if you're an institution because it could be like sort of you know how um is it in organic farming you have to leave a field untended to for a certain amount of time for it to regenerate like perhaps an organization can think about them themselves in a similar way that like every mu- like every 12 months there's like a two month uh slow, you know stopping of practice and seeing what a, what regenerates but as a free, as freelancers how I, i don't know if we can necessarily do that or or we may have to insist in the way yeah. that we can't go like design our contracts or how we decide to take on projects that we go okay like i have got seven projects you know after they're all done i will take mm. six months off which is also a luxury somehow yeah. i mean hard to afford that even you know it's like sort of at the end it also breaks down to that and also breaks down to the fact that the artist tends to operate in a way that once you disappear for a longer period of time Mm. you are kind of discredited by default i think yeah i think the resource sharing with you know the transparency that you know that is um gaining support across the kind of institutional roles like in terms of salary transparency in the us there was you know this giant google doc spreadsheet that some people share but also the other parts is transparency for like as independent like curators like you know how do you how much do you ask for what's fair what did other people get and you know those things i think still are so hard to come by and then there yeah it's almost i think that's the next you know hopefully there's a space for that sharing to take place so that one can you know like not plan in a way that isn't realistic or ended up yeah just to have that information prepared like i think even for people who are starting starting out and then be like oh this publication pays this much for this how many words so you know yes do write you know do that and then 
what do you aim for and how many can you do and you know just to be kind of realistic about that you know yeah also like with this idea of being transparent and resource sharing we were just earlier talking about curatorial collectives or collective working and and we propose perhaps that's one way of accruing time you know so that a pro- like projects can still be maintained and that or like you know new projects can happen whilst somebody can step back and um you know take the time that they need but also it leads me from what we are now talking about to think about what in our previous interview with Lara she was talking about how for her right now in Documenta they have many different working groups I don't know how many people are working there in total but there are a certain amount of people per working group that allows for you know, if you need to care for, uh, care for somebody, whether a child or otherwise, you can take the time to step away or bring them into the in, into the process. Or you know, however, and 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 I, and I it is interesting. Like rather than maybe necessarily talk, uh, creating, you know, uh, a, a global collective of curators, but the fact that we can think that perhaps we can start through perhaps the podcast or through. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, deprofessionalize or de- removing this veneer being yeah. uh, like may, perhaps asking somebody to step in for you whilst you take the time like I never it never occurred to me that I could do that actually you know mm-hmm. like it's interesting idea actually and through that you are then perhaps creating other opportunities for other, for people that may not be able to get them. It would uh, also remove a certain kind of uh, stockpiling or uh, opportunity hoarding, which mm. happens. Also fresh ideas would come out. It's an interesting idea. How can we make that happen? <laughs> yeah. I think perhaps it's a good note to end on. We've really covered a lot. And- well, there is a lot. There is one question here that maybe I can answer to end it, which is if you were, weren't a curator, what would you do? I actually like would love to be, and maybe this, you know, definitely should be kept on the pod- podcast so people can maybe ask me to do it. I'd love to be a still photographer on a film. Like that's like, I, you know, love film and but how I want to engage with film would be you know that like but I think that stills the stills would not be very quote-unquote representative of the film in in a kind of direct way so but maybe I should just look for that opportunity to get on film sets fingers crossed someone yeah job wanted yeah, yeah. Job, <laughs> job wanted all right well thanks so much Joanne. thank you so much thank you and yeah thanks so much for your time i hope this message finds you well if you would like to know more about joy's work we recommend reading his piece on slow programming titled finding the core our institutions ourselves published in shelf documents art library as practice co-edited by Joey with Heide Hendricks and Elizabeth Haynes. In the next episode, we interview Claire Butcher, educator and arts practitioner who has recently returned to the title of curator as way of positioning her practice. We discuss the difference between curating and arts education in larger scale events 
and also the urgencies of art education for the future of art and curatorial practice. If you have feedback, you can email us at I hope this message finds you well at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at I hope this message and find us on SoundCloud under the same handle. Our jingle was by the band Difficult and sound engineering was done by Nick Thomas. Hope well finds message. You finds message. This message. I well you finds you. I hope well hope. Message this, I use this, well finds you, finds you hope, use this I, well. Hope well finds message, you finds message, this message, I, well you finds you, I hope well hope, message this, I use this.